From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, May 7th. As we reported yesterday, Utah's so-called pandemic endgame legislation kicked in this week, nullifying all local COVID-19-related health orders. Governor Spencer Cox in a press conference Thursday. We met the, uh, the the metrics of what has affectionately been known as the Endgame Bill, HB 294, and we met them a little earlier than anticipated. And all of that is great news uh, for the people of the state of Utah. It means that our case counts are down. It means that our hospitalizations and our ICU specifically utilization is down. And, uh, and most importantly, it means that our vaccination numbers continue to grow and a vaccine availability continues to grow as as well. The situation is not exactly the case here in Grand County. Vaccination rates are up. No one is currently hospitalized for COVID-19, but the county is experiencing a high rate of COVID-19 transmission right now. In fact, Grand has the highest transmission rate in the state. Meanwhile, the state's endgame legislation has removed Grand's local mask mandate. It's up to local businesses now to make and enforce their own rules when it comes to COVID-19 protocols. City and county buildings will still require masks, and health department officials recommend other organizations do the same. Southeast Utah Health Officer Braden Bradford. I would recommend any organization where people are gathering inside or even if they are generally outside but kind of close together, Hmm. I'd still recommend that they uh, ask their their employees and customers to to wear masks during those those moments of of gathering. After analyzing data about the COVID-19 strains circulating through Grand County, Bradford said the health department is confident it's mostly the B117 variant. This COVID-19 strain originated in the United Kingdom and is easier to transmit person to person. We, we want the businesses to, to be aware of that and uh, recognize that you know th- this will pass, but it requires just a little bit more vigilance for, for, for some weeks. Okay, so it's the B117 variant that's more easily transferable. And to avoid the spread, you know, health guidance still applies, right? Like wearing a mask, like you said, when you're indoors or around a lot of people outside, you know, keeping social distance. Yeah, and and the one thing I think we, we've kind of forgotten that if we are a little bit sick, we, we should stay away uh, from whatever it is we are doing. And, and oftentimes, you know, so many times over the past year we've gotten the story of well well you know i just didn't think it was covid and it was (laughs) you know once you get enough people with mild symptoms they that will impact somebody more severely so to be vigilant about your own health and and if you are experiencing um something a little bit unusual that you that might not think is is real bad but stay away for those couple of days while you're feeling that until you're better now, the last time we talked about how Grand County's case numbers were higher than the rest of the state, you mentioned that it appears that the higher numbers could be caused by outside sources, like it could have been coming from visitors. At this point, um, still certainly there's some disease being brought in, but there's enough cases within Grand County that there's disease transmission happening from local to local, you know, family member to family member. We're probably at or higher than the highest uh, case rate that, that we've ever been in Grand County. And also last time we talked, it, you said that people who 
were being affected by these new COVID cases were unvaccinated and younger, um, and the cases were less severe. Um, is that is that also still the case? Still seems to be the case. About half of our cases right now are occurring in 25 to 45 year olds, uh, and that's a rate probably double what it uh, has been throughout the past year. But we have seen uh, some people at least admitted to the hospital. They may not have required an overnight stay, but, you know, felt something was off enough that they were released hospitalized. So we've been trying to keep an eye on that. Generally speaking, um, it has been a little bit milder, or, or if they have that first dose of vaccine in, again, it's not perfect protection, it's very good protection, but if you do end up contracting COVID, uh, generally your, your symptoms are a lot milder because you've had, you know, your initial dose. Okay, and and back to vaccines. I mean, we're still pretty high as far as the amount of people who have gotten at least their first shot in Grand County. Yeah, we're right about sixty percent of those that are eligible. It's important to make that distinction because right now those that are eligible are sixteen and older, um, which accounts for uh, you know seventy eight hundred people in Grand County. I think where the population is about ten thousand. So we have twenty two to twenty five hundred individuals that. Um, we're not even counting yet, so that's a big chunk of people. Um, so we still have a long way to go, but but you know, relatively speaking, compared to where Utah is, Grand County still is in a good place as far as how many people are vaccinated. Okay, and thanks for making the eligibility distinction. You know, finally, it sounds like it's up to businesses and organizations to kind of figure out their own policies when it comes to COVID nineteen safety. Do you have any concerns about that? I mean. We are experiencing the highest transmission rate in the state right now, and there's a lot of public safety that's on the shoulders of businesses right now. Yeah, and, and that's certainly a tough place for a business to be because masks are, are still pretty divisive. And when the rest of, of Utah has you know, essentially said that there's, there's no statewide or countywide mask mandates. So it, it is a tough place to be, but uh, still it, it's a combination of protecting your employees and and those customers that come in to keep this in place for a little bit longer. The joint order that was in place with us in, in the county last until the middle of June, this is certainly just a gut feeling, but I, I, I do feel like that was going to be really close to, to a time when we feel good about removing, you know, not having mask mandates in place. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out, but I, I think diligence for another month is uh, warranted. So, Brady, in a perfect world where COVID wasn't so politicized, what are the metrics you would like to see Grand get to before we start loosening restrictions on safety protocols? Well, I, I actually think the metrics the state put into place, they ended up being pretty pretty good. So less than 191 per 100,000. So for, for Grand County, that would mean, uh, you know, less than 19 active cases which I think is a great goal, um, keeping people out of the hospital, also a, a very good goal. And we really do have vaccine for anybody that wants it. So those things are in place. So really it's a matter of just getting that case rate down. That's, I think, a solid thing to shoot for at the moment. Braden Bradford, health officer at the Southeast Utah Health Department. Although the state has ended Grand's local mask mandate, wearing them in public spaces indoors and in crowded outdoor areas is still recommended because of Grand's high transmission rate. Vaccinations will help as well. Bradford says there are, quote, plenty of local vaccine appointments available. 
The health department is anticipating that they will soon receive some Pfizer vaccine, which is currently available to anyone over the age of 16, and it may soon be available to anyone over the age of 12. We're not raising the Wi-Fi yet. We know the community will we'll get through it. And now it's time for our weekly newsreel, where we speak to reporters and editors about the latest stories they covered in our area. It's been a difficult time for many in our community, and this week things got a little harder for the friends and family of a local Navtech expeditions guide who recently died while giving a tour. Times Independent editor Doug McMurdo has more. Alden Dennison was a guide for Navtech expeditions and uh, Tuesday morning he was guiding a group and he was taking a group photo. He stepped back too far from what I understand and he uh, fell 200 feet to his death. Mm. Classic Air was able to land and confirm that he was deceased and uh, the San Juan County Sheriff's Office uh, took over the investigation. Mm. I spoke to Brian Martinez uh, from Navtech Expeditions and um, clearly they're very upset over there, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just uh, grief stricken. Brian said that um, Alden was a hard worker uh, who was passionate about um, sharing the beauty mm-hmm. of uh, uh, Southeast Utah to their customers. And um, we can all share in that. I think we all love to mm-hmm. show off Moab when we have out of town visitors. And um, that was his job. So condolences to the folks at Navtech and um, mm-hmm. to his family. I understand his parents live here in town. So um, yeah. deep, deep condolences to all of them. Yeah, it's it's such a tragic incident. And I'm sure that everybody at Navtech is really feeling um, feeling some pain right now. And as a, as a local guide, it hurts, hurts the whole community. It does. Where do you want to take us next, Doug? Well, let's uh, go upbeat a little bit. I'm okay. um, Jane Belknap. Um, Anybody who's been around for a while and has um, ever wondered about BioCrest, they owe all of their knowledge about it to Jane. And she was admitted into the National Academy of Sciences, which, um, for those who are unaware, that's like a a soldier getting promoted to general. It's a a crowning achievement, a capstone to a brilliant career, Mm -hmm. well-deserved. She was truly surprised, just a delightful lady to interview. Mm -hmm. Um, One of those interviews where lots of laughter, that's always good. Yeah. And um, she was surprised, not because of what she's accomplished, uh, but just of a, a lot of other factors. And she gave me, um, I want to share this one quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Jane talking about uh, the typical uh, scientist who does get admitted to the National Academy of Science. Uh, the typical member lives on either coast, studies the forest and not the desert, studies anything but soil, is from a university and not the government, and mostly is a man. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so true. yeah, oh, wow. uh, it was, but she's, um, she's the one responsible for teaching all of us about biocrust, uh-huh. the cryptobiotic soil, if you will, and, um, the ecosystem that uh-huh. is protected by biocrust and what an important role it plays, 
uh, in the larger ecosystem. So wow. kudos to her. I'm, I'm very happy for her. Yeah, congratulations to Jane. And I'm sure all of the many people she's worked with over the years are pretty thrilled too. I think so. I yeah. think so. And now let's go to an interesting story that the Times Independent has about uh, voting. Um, the city is going to do it differently this year. It's going to be a huge difference, actually. They voted unanimously recently to go to what's called um, ranked choice voting. Now, what is ranked choice voting? Like, what will we be looking at at our ballot? Okay, you don't just go in and pick one person. Mm -hmm. You rank them. Your first choice is Mm -hmm. number one. Okay. And then whoever is on the ballot, two, three, four, five, six, just rank them in the order of preference, Mm -hmm. with one being the most desirable. So, and what this does is it ensures a majority of voters actually elected someone. Unless they outright get more than 50%. Right. Then they win outright. Mm-hmm. If, um, if they don't, and often that's the case, especially when in races that have multiple candidates, they'll have a run, an instant runoff. So the second and third vote choices are then tallied, and with every round, the least amount of votes, whoever gets the least amount of votes is eliminated mm, and that process continues until there's just one candidate or uh, one winner so if your first person doesn't make it maybe your second will so sure. it's gone on in payson and uh, vineyard okay utah in 2019 and um both voters and candidates liked it quite a bit it was very favorable to them so with this news um, first of all there's no primary so we're going to save money there mm. and instead of having a primary in august that's the month that candidates will file. So instead of June, it'll go to August. Right. Okay. Right. And did the city council, you know, talk about why they wanted to try this new system? I think it was a, a question of there's so much concern in mm-hmm. rhetoric about the integrity of voting already. Um, this is a system, I think, that will be more accountable to the voter. The voter will have more of a say and I think more than more than anything, it's going to save money, taxpayer money, and it's going to give candidates a better opportunity to to be civilized, if you will. Because mm, um, you don't have to just talk to your base. You have to talk to your opponent's base as well mm-hmm. and convince them mm-hmm. of your platform. Hey, maybe I'm your number two person. <laughs> right. Seeking out second and third choice mm-hmm. status is, a, is going to be... Mm-hmm. Clearly, uh, it's going to be a strategy for, okay. for a lot of candidates. This is really going to shake things up a little bit it on is. the local landscape, I think. It is. And it's happening at a, at a very opportune time because two incumbents are not going to be running. Mm-hmm. And one of them is Mayor uh, Emily Niehaus and uh, Council Member Mike Duncan. They're, they're both not going to run for various reasons. Mike cited personal reasons. Um, the mayor, uh, she wants to... Um, uh, keep working until the, the clock you know, mm-hmm. strikes midnight on her term. And um, mm-hmm. she's got things that she wants to take care of. And she's also willing to um, um, act as a mentor to any potential mayoral or city council candidates. And, you know, as the Times Independence reported before, the mayor has another project that she's working on as well. She does. Uh, forgive me if I get this wrong, but the Heron School, is that correct? Just Heron School. Heron School. No the. No the. Yeah, okay. She, she was emphatic about that. Okay. And she's also um, being courted 
by uh, the governor for a possible position, from what I hear. Okay. Um, she's probably going to be upset with me for, um, <laughs> for, for mentioning that, but it's out there. Um, right. So, and, um, you know, she's a smart lady. She should be getting courted for big jobs. So. She's been a, a, a huge advocate for on a, so many issues for Moab on the state level as well. Um, and she's also yeah. um, the rare candidate that can cross the party line with a handout and being warmly received. So that's that's heartening to see as well. Well, now you just got me excited for election season. <laughs> I know. I'm a nerd that way. <laughs> Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. This March, Governor Spencer Cox declared Utah to be in a state of emergency due to drought. In the latest edition of the Moab Sun News, Rachel Fixon reports on how this drought might affect many areas of the state, from agriculture to recreation and hydropower. The drought is obviously a huge issue, and it's going to affect kind of every aspect of life. Um, It's going to affect the environment, policy, you know, just ways that we live our daily lives, development, the economy. So it's kind of this huge issue. And I kind of, in this piece, just touched on a few elements that seem timely. Um, Obviously, the huge one is that Lake Powell is getting frighteningly low. It's just a few dozen feet above this critical threshold. Um, And if it reaches that threshold, that's going to trigger some conservation measures that the the Colorado River compact states are going to have to kick in. And it's going to compromise the operation of the dam that provides power to many people. And so that's huge. And it's kind of like a a looming reckoning that's been a long time coming. And I think people know that, but it seems like it's getting quite close. Yeah, uh, this is something that I know, like you mentioned, the people who watch the Colorado River have been saying is coming for a long time. And now they're saying, well, it, it, it might be here this year. Did you find any information about how this is going to affect even recreation? Recreation? Yeah, I think uh, kind of some of those photos that have a, you know, real shock impact are the boat ramps where you can see the water is like 10 feet, 20 feet below the end of the boat ramp. And, you know, that might seem like kind of a, it is like a a less dire consequence of the lake levels being so low, but it is a very like visual, obvious thing where you're like, oh, wow, like we can't actually put our boats into the water unless we like throw them over this little cliff. That's, that's gonna maybe for the park mean that they're gonna have to close the boat ramps and maybe some, some folks will have to rethink their trips. Now you mentioned in this piece that a lot of people have been talking about water conservation um, and water conservation has been brought up recently locally as far as a discussion as to how we can better or more efficiently use our water resources. What's interesting about Moab is that we don't currently use any water from the Colorado River, but that has been put out as like, maybe we can start diverting some in the future if we need it. Um, And I think the pressure on the Colorado is really affecting those conversations now. Definitely, yeah. I think uh, in the piece that I wrote, I definitely talked about some of the groundwater studies in the Moab Valley and um, some of the cities, like discussions about water conservation measures that they might want to put in place coming up soon here. The Lake Powell thing and the Moab aquifer are not necessarily immediately related. 
Um, but in this bigger picture where the entire Southwest is in this drought condition and both here locally in Moab and all across the Southwest, cities are growing, development is increasing. And so in that sense, they're related. And then also, like you mentioned, if we're putting as a plan B or even, you know, plan C or plan D that we're going to draw water out of the Colorado, especially if that's something we're like, well, maybe we'll do that 10 years from now. Well, 10 years from now, all the water rights and the rules regarding the Colorado River might be a little bit different than they look today. Um, so that might be something we don't necessarily want to have as our our only alternative plan. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And you mentioned in this piece that, you know, the Utah Division of Water Rights is in the process of adjudicating all the water rights in the valley. So basically figuring out, reviewing every single water right to find out how much we're actually using. And then they're expected to sort of publish a paper, publish a study that shows the estimated amount of water that we actually have to use. These conversations on water, I mean, it's starting to ratchet up. Definitely. And um, something that researchers are saying is, you know, as these studies get completed, they'll say, well, we learned this amount of information, but we also came across these other questions. So it's like every study begets more studies. And it's kind of an ever-changing animal as you're making observations and you're trying to figure out, okay, where is the best place to put a gauge to understand how the water is moving and how are ongoing factors like climate change or increased demand or changing types of demand for mm -hmm. users, how are those changing the problem even at the same time as we're trying to look at it and understand it? So it's super complex. And I think that we're going to keep having to uh, put resources towards trying to understand how much water there is and how it moves for a long time. That's a great way to describe it because it's not like it's this fixed source that we can sort of figure out quite quickly and easily as we've seen in the last decade. It's definitely not an easy thing to determine, especially with, like you said, the compounding factors of climate change. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about this piece that's in the sun this week about drought? Yeah. Utah State University is taking part in this, it's like a citizen science um, drought observations reporting network, and you can download an app and you can submit photos and descriptions, and there's different multiple choice questions and, and scaled evaluations that you can submit. And especially if the same observer submits observations in the same place over time, that can be super valuable to folks who are trying to understand the drought and create, you know, graphics and data to reflect back to the public so that, you know, we can all share information about what we're seeing on the ground and uh, get a better understanding of what's going on that way. So the, the name of the app is the is Condition Monitoring Observer Reports. The other article I was hoping you could highlight in the sun was another one that you wrote about um, energy companies that are delinquent on their taxes here in Grand County. This is an interesting piece. Can you tell us uh, what happened during the county commission meeting in relation to this topic? Yeah, yeah, I did find this really interesting. Um, it was during Chris Kaufman, the county treasurer, was just giving his report. And part of the treasurer's report involves bringing up any taxpayers that are five years or more delinquent on their taxes. And that time lapse triggers the ability for the county to put those properties up for an auction. 
And then any properties that are sold at auction, the county out of that sale price would take, you know, the, the taxes owed. And then any other um, profits made from that sale would be sent to the, the owner whose property was sold. So there were a couple properties in Grand County that are five years or more delinquent. And um, Chris Kaufman was recommending to the commission that they actually defer those taxes indefinitely because the properties in question are not actual land parcels. They're equipment on leased federal land, their oil and gas mining equipment. And it appears as though they are not productive, probably not profitable, possibly abandoned. And the county hasn't been able to get in touch with the owners of, of those pieces of equipment. And so if the county were to hold an auction sale and um, as is likely, no one made any bids to buy those pieces of equipment, then the county would be stuck with it. And the county would also be stuck with any mandatory cleanup or plugging of the you know, open mines or anything, oh, or wow. excuse me, open wells. So they, they actually would be a liability rather than an asset. So deferring the taxes indefinitely would mean that probably what would happen, Chris explained, is the state eventually will see that they're unprofitable um, and that the owners can't be contacted. And uh, the state will remove them from the tax roll and just say, okay, this is not like a, a property on which these people owe taxes anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and then Chris Kaufman would bring that before the commission and the commission would you know, vote on canceling the taxes. And yeah, I thought it was very interesting. And Commissioner Sarah Stock asked my very question, um, which was, is this common practice? And uh, Chris Kaufman didn't say yes, exactly. But he said it wasn't the first time that it's happened. And kind of from the perspective of someone who's making somewhat of a speculative exploration, if you're an energy company, if you can see that there's no repercussions for not paying your taxes, then it sort of makes a kind of financial sense, <laughs> even though it's, uh, you know, not very honorable and not great for our county. And I did look up, I was very curious, I wondered if this was common practice across the West. And I did find that in uh, President Joe Biden's American Jobs Plan, part of that proposal involves um, basically creating a bunch of new jobs for people who are going to be plugging any of these orphaned wells and cleaning up abandoned mines and doing some of that reclamation work. And uh, it's it's quite a few mines across the United States. It's hundreds of thousands of sites that are potentially environmentally hazardous, potentially could be causing health hazards to you know, nearby communities. And that's kind of exciting to see that that's in you know, this federal plan because it really could be applicable to our area. We're obviously a place that uh, a lot of mining was happening at a time when there maybe was not a lot of oversight of that industry. And I'm sure we have a lot of sites here that would um, be eligible for this this type of program. Rachel Fixon, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we speak with newspaper reporters and editors about the most recent stories they covered in our area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.